the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, although it feels like kind of Monday because we were off yesterday. I hope you had a great um, Memorial Day holiday. Uh, pray you had a great weekend in church. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering your phone calls and, and taking your Bible questions. Whatever is on your heart or mind, I'll do the best that I can to answer if you call, you can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, banner on the top will say call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, prime one more time, 340-9585. Well, this is for us, for me and the people here at Calvary Chapel, a really, really busy week. Um. We have our high school awards banquet um, tonight, uh, right after the program. We'll be going out to the Shirts Community Center uh, and doing our high school awards banquet. And then on Thursday is our high school graduation. Now, the reason that matters for you and the radio audience is tomorrow we'll have a very special program. Paul and I always have the privilege of taking our seniors out for lunch. Uh, in the last week of school, we always do it on a Wednesday, so... Uh, we'll be taking the seniors out tomorrow, and then when they come back here with us, uh, our graduates or our graduating seniors will be on the program, and we've done this every year, and you seem to like it, so we're going to keep doing it, and these kids will share their heart with you. And I think one of the things you'll see is why there's so much hope. There's so much hope. Kids that really love the Lord. Now, not all of our kids are Christians, and, and we get that, but uh, so many of them are, and you'll be able to hear from them tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. While we wait for phone calls, we would love your phone calls. Here is our first question. This one is from our email inbox from Thomas. And he said, today I have two comments and a question. A uh, comment for me, Pastor Ron. As wonderful as newborn babies smell and sound, heaven is going to be unimaginably better um, you know, Thomas, uh, it, Thomas comes to church here and I always talk about how newborn babies smell and the sounds they make are so amazing. I always tell parents they ought to be uh, recording those sounds that they make. Uh, and Thomas, I agree. Heaven is going to be uh, infinitely better. So thank you for the comment. And then Thomas has a comment for Reuben in Seguin. Uh, Thomas, comment for you, Reuben, is thank you. Thank you for your courage to share your shortcomings and struggles. You're blessing people you will never know on this side of eternity. I'm praying for you, but not just me. 
Uh, this program is heard by tens of thousands of people here and across the country. There are thousands of prayers ascending to the throne on your behalf. Uh, and then he says this, Reuben, so you can write this down. I look forward to meeting you at the men's retreat this fall. Uh, so Reuben might make that down uh, September. I don't have the date right now. I think it's the 22nd uh, is when it starts. But uh, you can mark that down. You've got a whole bunch of friends that you've never met, Reuben. So Thomas, thank you for that. Here's his question. He says, uh, the Bible has 66 book, books, 39 Old Testament books, written by God through 40 men, 39 Jews, and one Gentile. What is the significance of these numbers in this context? You know, um, Thomas, for, forgive me, but I really don't understand what you mean by what is the significance of the numbers. Um, the Bible has 66 books, 40 uh, 39 Old Testament books um, written uh, the entire Bible over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 different men. Um, uh, I don't know that, that I understand the significance of the numbers in this context, but here's what I do know. The Bible is absolutely amazing. You know, one of the things that we're doing on Wednesday nights here is we are going through the prophecy of Isaiah and it's called by many scholars, like sort of a mini Bible. It has 66 books as well. It has a generous, generous gathering of the New Testament uh, along with the old uh, prophecies from the beginning of, of Isaiah's ministry as a prophet all the way down to the very end of time. So um, um, other than that, I don't know what significance you're, you're addressing, but... Um, it is the most magnificent book that's ever been written. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one is from Scott. He says, Pastor on Revelation chapter 17 to me seems one of the harder chapters to figure out in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of symbolism, but I do not know all of them and what they represent. Could you kindly go over the chapter for me? If that takes up too much time, could you at least cover verses 9 through 11? Scott, I'll do that, uh, 9 through 11. I can't go through it all. Uh, I actually have three uh, separate teachings in Revelation chapter 17 um, that uh, are on our website, and all of that stuff, of course, is free. Go to Revelation uh, the last time I did it, uh, and you will be able to see um, those things. And, and I say that because this is a very, very difficult chapter. Um there are some who say this is the most difficult chapter in all of Revelation 17 um, to to understand. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's all there before you if you really understand the Old Testament symbolism. But I think one of the reasons chapter 17, and I'll add 18 in this, is because they're not in chronological order. Um, if you go to Revelation 14 and 16, you've already seen the fall of Babylon. So in chapter 17 and 18, uh, what we have is the detail regarding her fall. Babylon is the city, other than Jerusalem, that is mentioned more times in the Bible than any other city. 287 times. So it's really important. And in chapter 17, you're dealing with Babylon symbolically as a false religious system. But when you get to chapter 18, you're going to see Babylon in reference to the fall of commercial Babylon, which is going to be uh, its its absolute total destruction. So uh, we're we're looking at something that is rich with symbolism, but I don't think that difficult to understand. Now, before I go to verses nine through eleven, let me just say this. Um, the two women that you encounter in this chapter are both clearly symbolic. They're not real women. Um, spiritual or ecclesiastical or religious Babylon is the first. Uh, we're told that she sits on, by that she's controlling many waters. And the waters are identified for us in the 15th verse of this chapter as nations, people, literally the, the multitudes of people on the earth. So it's a picture of false religion seducing people, throughout history and it's always been the case it always will be the case and by the way religion 
it's going to flourish in the Great Tribulation. And we might think that when the church is raptured, religion would cease, but it's going to be just the opposite religion, and false religion, of course, is going to flourish. So let me get down to verses uh, 9 through 11, and we'll go through some of those things. Again, I'm going to do this very quickly because I talk a lot, and uh, when you talk a lot, you just, I could just go on and on and on. I love Revelation um, chapter 17. Verse 9 begins, This calls for a mind of wisdom, which is saying to you and to me, just watch out, this is going to be difficult. Uh, it means we need to exercise discernment. Um, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, the reason we need wisdom is because this verse helps us sort out the mysteries to follow. Uh, we know from verse 18 that the city where this woman sits is a city, a literal city that existed in John's day. This book was written in 95-ish A.D. Um, the Greek for reigns and rules is in the present tense. It would mean that the city where the prostitute of the religious system reigns is uh, uh, described here by the angel that's appearing to John. Now, in John's time, and I think I think it's easy for us to determine too, there could be no doubt about the location of this city. Um, Rome is the, is the city. Rome has, for generations, been known as the city of seven hills. Uh, in John's day, when he wrote, Rome was drinking the blood of the saints, killing Christians. Um, Rome has been doing so ever since. That John's vision uses scarlet as the color of the beast, and the harlot in this chapter is also not a surprise. Not only is this consistent with Old Testament imagery, but people living in the Roman Empire would also know that scarlet was Rome's color and also was a color that signified wealth. So uh, this false religion uh, is is uh, located, headquartered in Rome. Uh, it's also, I think, Scott, important to notice that Rome was the place where the world married the church for the very first time. Uh, it was 313 A.D. when the Catholic Church, that we now call the Roman Catholic Church, uh, became the official religion of the world uh, under King or Emperor Constantine uh, as he made his infamous declaration of faith. And the reason I say infamous, it was an expedient declaration of faith. It wasn't something that he meant. So it's not that um, because he started the Catholic Church and declared it the, the, the official religion of the world, uh, it doesn't mean that he's going to be in heaven. It doesn't mean that he was saved at all. His faith was more for political expediency. Uh, there's no evidence that Constantine was actually a believer in the way you and I, Scott, would understand uh, believers. Um, in verse 10, he says, they are also seven kings. Now, here's another part of the mystery. Uh, the hills are literal and physical, but they're also symbolic. Now, there are some scholars who conclude that the seven hills, if you have a King James Version, it says mountains, represent not literal mountains, but kings. And the reason they say that is because mountains are used metaphorically to mean kings or power, strong nations. Uh, thus, some see these mountains as hills, or hills not as Rome, but as kings. But here's what's wrong with that. Uh, verse 9 and 10 in this chapter both say uh, that they're both of these kings, both of these things. They are a physical location, and they are seven kings. That means prophecy in this case, as is often the case with prophecy, has both a literal and a symbolic nature. Not only are the seven heads seven hills, they also represent seven kings. It says of those kings, five have fallen. One is, the other is, as yet, has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. Now, I hope this isn't boring to the rest of the audience, but Scott's interested, and I like this stuff, so here's a little bit of history. By the time John received this vision, there had been five world empires that had come and gone. Egypt, and of course Pharaoh, Assyria, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia under Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, and then Greece under Alexander the Great, where the kingdoms that had fallen the current kingdom, the one which is here, is the most ferocious of all the kingdoms, and that was Rome. Described in verse 11 as the beast who once was and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven 
and is going to his destruction. Now, the the eighth king, we've got Rome and the, the, the empire that never was militarily defeated. It just sort of sinned itself out of existence. So when you get to verse 11, you're talking about the king to come. And he's described here as the beast. We would call him the Antichrist. Um, that's the king to come. And he is the one who is going to turn the world uh, into an absolute horror. Uh, and that's where it will be. So um, I hope that makes sense to you, Scott. Um, again, let me recommend uh, the Bible studies that I did on uh, Revelation uh, and in particular, your chapter, chapter 17. Thank you very, very much for the question. Okay, 340-9585. Here is a question from Andrea. She says, Pastor Ron, don't you think Jesus would be in favor of same-sex marriage if he was here? He wants us to love others, and he wants us to be happy. Andrea, see, that's one of the problems that we have with the church culture that we live in. People don't really know Jesus. You know, it's impossible for Jesus to contradict what's already been delivered to us in the Word. Now, I understand how romantic the notion of love is, but there's nothing romantic about gay love. There's absolutely nothing about same-gender marriage that would please the Lord. He has made it really clear, and I think what we have to do is understand, Andrea, that he made the rules. He created marriage. He created mankind. He created marriage. Thus, he also is the one who makes the rules governing marriage. And he said that marriage is between one man and one woman. It is intended to be forever until death do us part. Now, we have sort of blown that even in the Christian church. Divorce has become um, the the convenient way out of what we call unhappy relationships. Um, But you see, Jesus doesn't care really about us being happy. Uh, he, he does want us to love, but first we have to love God. And if we love God, then we love people who love God. And people who are married to unbelievers are incapable of true love. It's as simple. They can be um, filled with lust. They can be um, filled with excitement. But true love is a love that points people to the person of Jesus Christ. True love is a love that wants and won't settle for less than eternal life with God in heaven. So no, Jesus wouldn't be in favor of same-sex marriage if he was here. And by the way, he is here in the person of the Holy Spirit. And all we have to do is know who he is, know what holiness is, and we'd understand that. Tragically, Andrea, the churches, many of them, are simply not teaching who Jesus really is. His character, his nature is the most important thing. Uh, You said, Andrea, that Jesus wants us to love, but the love that Jesus wants us to have is a love for brothers and sisters in Christ, not the physical act of love or love-making. And if if you really love others, you're going to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. And before... Anybody gets hung up on me saying, talking about same-sex marriage, I'm responding to Andrea's question. However, I would say exactly and do say exactly the same things to people when they come to the church and they um, are living together, they're having sex with people that they're not married to. Um, well, God wants me to be happy and I'm in love with him or I'm in love with her. And we, we have to tell them that's not love. That might be lust, but that's not love. If you knew your value to God, you'd understand that. So, Andrea, that's not the answer you wanted, but that's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, Jesus. Here is another homosexual question, anonymously sent. Is it possible for a non-practicing homosexual to be a Christian? The answer is, of course it is. Now, by non-practicing homosexual, you mean somebody with same-sex attraction. Uh, Anonymous, we live in a fallen world. And the reality, and this is something that Christians have to understand, the reality is, is that people are attracted to the same gender as they are. Not as many as the world would have us believe. 
but the truth is there are people who are not attracted to the opposite sex. It's that simple. And so for that person to be a Christian, in fact, let me say this, that the non-practicing homosexual is a Christian that pleases God abundantly so. I think too often we Christians, you know, with all of the nonsensical talk about conversion therapy and pray the gay away and all those other things, um, we did so much harm, the church did, in, in advancing those kinds of false hopes. And I know people that have suffered a great deal because the gay didn't go away. There are people who are going to be attracted to people of the same gender. Now, the person who says no to that is the one who understands that, yes, this is my attraction, this is uh, my preference. However, I can't have Jesus and my gay lover. And these are men who choose, and women who choose celibacy instead of being sexually active. Instead of giving in to temptation, they choose to honor the Lord. And when somebody is being asked by the Lord to give away a part of their lives, the sexual fulfillment part of their lives, that, that really has been, that means so much to all of us. The person who gives up the hard thing, well, that's the person who proves he or she is a Christian, the person who pleases the Lord the most. You know, if I give up something that I don't really care about, well, then it's not that big a deal. But if I give up something that means everything to me, and I do it because Jesus means more, well, that's the very definition of a a Christian. Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Not be in denial, but to deny yourself, to deny your flesh. Say yes to God, and in the process, you have to learn to say no to you. And that's exactly what you described. So it's not that our preferences just go away. It's not that suddenly we wake up one day and say, oh, gee, I like women now, or I like men now. It's not that at all, but it's a choice that we make. We've had a lot of people in our church over the years who've made that choice, and in the process of making that choice, believe me, God was able to use them. Believe me, God has a plan for them. And their life, even absent sex, their life will be richer and fuller than they ever could have imagined, and certainly uh, more than we could possibly understand. You know, the Apostle Paul, Anonymous, um, said he wished, or he prayed that all men were as he was, and in the context of 1 Corinthians, he was talking about being celibate. I, I wish that all men were as I am. He said, you know, because I'm not married, I, I can devote all my time, my energy, and my strength to, to my service for God. If I was married, I would have to to, to devote some of my energy and some of my strength to, to making sure that my wife was, was um, pleased. So the celibate life is impossible as it sounds to a lot of us. The celibate life is, according to the Apostle Paul, better. Because that's a life completely committed to Jesus. Anonymous, let me say one other thing. And and this is for everybody in this audience. We need, rather than to be repulsed by homosexuals, uh, we, we still have to tell them the truth. We have to tell them the truth in love. But we need to be willing to go and talk to them. We need to understand how impossible it seems to somebody who doesn't know Christ when we tell them that you've got to give up the relationship, this man or this woman that you love, you've got to give it up. We have to understand how difficult that is. Imagine for a moment that somebody came to you and said, uh, you know, to, to go to heaven, you have to stop living like this, which means you've got to give up this person that you love. I can't imagine what it would be like for me if somebody said, well, here's the only requirement to go to heaven. You've got to give up Paula. I mean, how impossible would that choice be? And yet, those of us who are believers, we've got to make the choice dictated by God. Now, obviously, God's not going to ask somebody to give up their husband or their wife that they love. But that's exactly what we're saying to the gay community. And these are men and women 
who, if they continue to live a life committed to homosexuality, they're not going to go to heaven. And that's why we've got to be there for them. And we can't just look down our nose at them. We can't treat them like they're broken. Instead, we've got to give them hope. And the hope is in Jesus. The hope isn't saying, well, you can change. You have to change. The hope is in Jesus. And I think the very best way for us to approach homosexual community is to just share the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say, well, well, I'm gay. Are you going to tell me I can't be gay? I'm going to tell you that Jesus loves you and that he wants to forgive all of your sins. And then we've got to be willing to trust God to let them work it out with God. They ask us the direct question. Of course, we've got to tell them the truth. However, we have no power to do it. They have to do it as they sort of wrestle with God on their own. So I hope that answers your question probably a little bit more than you asked. You can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left in this program. It's the Tuesday edition, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love to have your phone calls. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Amy writes, Pastor Ron, what do you know about the apparent battle going on between Beth Moore and the SBC, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Amy, I, I, I purposely don't know a lot about it. Now, obviously, it's in the news, and and um, I get headlines and things like that. Um, but I, I don't know. Now, now, a couple of things about Beth Moore. She is a, a good Bible teacher. Uh, I, I personally don't like her style. It's just not my kind of Southern Baptist preachy style. Uh, I think she's more of an exhorter than she is a teacher. Uh, but she has a huge following, and not just women. Um, and she feels, and I think rightfully so, like some of the big boys at the SBC have been treating her over the years like a second-class citizen. And and uh, I, I would agree that they have done that. Now, I think the battle goes deeper than that. Um, she is an egalitarian the SBC is complementarian. Those two terms mean that uh, uh, complementarian is that m- leadership in the church is is to be male. Um, uh, the Bible is as clear as it can possibly be. Uh, egalitarian means that you, you believe that women uh, have exactly the same standing as men in the church and everywhere else, by the way. Um, um, there is no male nor female, Galatians chapter 3 says, and they'll take that and say, see, that opens up every single a position a man can have to a woman, um, and that's a, a really bad exegesis of Galatians chapter 3. Um, but, you know, it's not a good mix. Beth Moore has been SBC her entire life, and uh, she needs to, to, if she is committed to wanting to be a pastor and having her own church. I don't think she is all that interested in doing that um, because she is, um, she has her own ministry and, and uh, is, is I think fairly successful. Uh, but, but you see, you don't change something. Uh, if you disagree with it, you go and do your own thing. And, and, and that's the problem. The, the SBC, believe me, is not going to change its position on complementarianism. So, um, I, I don't know any more details than that. I, I purposely avoid um, reading the things that are being said by one against the other. Um, I just think it's sad that you've got people who love Jesus and they know the Bible, and um, and yet there's such divergence on the interpretation of those passages. 
So I, I hope that helps. I, I, but I'm really not going to get into any gossip, and I protect myself from it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Natalie asks, "What would I say to someone who claims they're as good as most Christians and they don't need to be saved?" Natalie, this is a question that breaks my heart. I have family members who say this very same thing. I'm a good person. I'm as good as so-and-so, and and what makes them saved and me not saved if I'm as good as they are? Well, these are people that don't understand the character and the nature of God. So here's what you would say to someone uh, who makes that claim. You would say, in order to get to heaven, because heaven is perfect, because God is holy, you have to be, we have to be perfect. And then you can just ask them a question. Are you perfect? And they would say, of course I'm not perfect. And then you could say, well, good, because neither am I. But that's the standard of heaven. And anything less than perfect, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is declaring, if you want to be in heaven and not believe in him, that's the only way to do it, being perfect. And then you tell him, that's why Jesus is necessary. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness or the perfection of God. Jesus gives us his perfection, and all he asks in exchange, Natalie, is that we give him our filth. And then what happens now positionally or practically, nobody's perfect until we're going to be with him, but positionally, Jesus sees us as perfect. As soon as his blood covers us, all sins, past, present, and future, all of those sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And so we become, in his eyes, perfect when we ask him to be our Lord and Savior. Now, typically the response, Natalie, that someone is going to say when you communicate those things to them is this. Well, that's too high a standard. If if you have to be perfect, get to heaven. That's too high a standard. That's not fair. And then you've got to ask him to think about it. Would you really want heaven to be less than perfect? Our Bible says that no impure thing will enter there. You really want heaven to be less than perfect. And sometimes, and I've had him say this to me, yes, I do. I don't think perfect should be the standard. Well, okay, well then exactly what level of less than perfect is acceptable to you? Is it okay if somebody who is um, basically a good person, but they lie a little bit or they cheat or maybe they use really, really terrible language? Do you think they should go to heaven? I've had people say, well, yeah, if that's what they do, well, how about murders? How about serial killers? How about child rapists? How about uh, Adolf Hitler? You see, God doesn't differentiate between levels of sin. You're either perfect or you're not. And in order to get in the door of heaven, you have to be perfect. And when you explain it that way reasonably, and then say, but you don't have to worry about that standard being too high because believing in Jesus makes you perfect. You're telling them the truth, but you're also offering a solution to their problem. And then, of course, Natalie, it's the Holy Spirit that has to do the work. So that's what uh, I I would say. It's what I think you should say. Uh, They don't understand that nobody's good. I had somebody once tell me, well, I just don't accept that there's no good people on the earth. Look around, there's lots of good people. A lot of unbelievers think that mankind is basically good at heart. Well, all you have to do is ask him to look with honest eyes at the world that we live in, and we can see that we're not good. We're not good. And that's without the standard of perfection. So tell him about how to be perfect by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, they're not believing just blindly, they're believing based on overwhelming evidence. Jesus is a real person. He changed the world. Uh, 
more than any human, more than any thousand humans that have ever lived. We know historically that they killed him. The evidence is overwhelming that he didn't stay dead. We also know that he predicted all of that would be the case, thus proving that he is not just the Son of God, a created being, but God the Son, the creator of all things. So thank you. I hope that helps. Here is a question from Terry. He says, you talk about real faith and false faith a lot. What is the difference? Terry, the difference is heaven or hell. You see, real faith is faith in the real person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus presented to us in the Bibles. Not a Jesus of our own making. Not a Jesus that we can change to, 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 to meet our standards. But, but a Jesus that stands above us as holy and just and absolutely righteous. And when we come to him, we have to come to him on his terms. So the real Jesus, when I'm talking about real faith, that's what I'm talking about. I'll also say this, Terry. We have to have faith in the real promises of God. You know, having a real faith versus a false faith, if I believe that God is going to make me rich, if God's going to make me healthy, if God wants me to, to have no diseases or no illnesses, if I believe that, that's not real, is it? I mean, all we have to do is look around at the evidence. Well, that's believing in false promises. Now, the real promises of God are staggering. Terry, I am and you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's promised to finish the work that he began. He's promised us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I tell my church all the time, just highlight the promises that are real in Romans chapter 8. Now, they're all over the Bible, but just in Romans chapter 8, and they're staggering. And we can really believe those promises because they're promises made to us by God who guarantees them. But false faith is a faith that says, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, God wants me to be rich or God wants me to be well. All I have to do is believe that. That's not real. A false faith is a faith that says, well, God wants me to be happy. The first question that we had on the program today. First or second. God wants me to be uh, happy. And so if I love this person, it doesn't matter if I'm married or not. It doesn't matter if they're the, the same gender I am or not. God wants me to be happy, so I want to be happy. That's false faith. That's not the real Jesus. And so I think the biggest difference is the real person of Christ and the real promises, as opposed to those promises that aren't real at all. And the world has been making those promises from the very beginning, trying to change who God is, the nature, the character of God. And when they do, when they do that, there is no hope, Terry. There's no hope in that Jesus. You've got to have the real Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of our imagination, not a Jesus of our own making. 340-9585. Phones have been quiet. Here is an anonymous question. Why does a loving God send people to hell? Now, I emphasize anonymous, the send, in your question. Because God doesn't send anybody to hell. Um, people choose to go to hell. Now, it's not a conscious choice, you know, where people say, well, I'm going to go. I think I want to go to hell. It's not that at all. It's just that God tells us the standard of heaven. I answered another question is perfection. Jesus will give us perfection. All we have to do is ask him to forgive us and give him control of our lives. And he then makes that, completes that transaction. If we don't do that because we're less than perfect, then we have chosen to go to hell. He makes salvation so simple. We don't have to do anything. Um, we, we don't have to be on probation. He, he just makes the choice simple. And if we choose not to accept his offer of eternal life, 
well, then we've chosen the path that we've taken. And so make no mistake, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We make the choice to go there. In fact, and this is what I say to our church all the time, Anonymous, is that we literally have to go over Jesus' dead, and I would add resurrected body, to go to hell. It's not his plan. It's not what he wanted. Isaiah 28 says judgment is a strange word for God, a work that's foreign to his nature. God is compassionate and patient and abounding in love. And so when somebody makes the choice to go to hell, it breaks his heart. So this isn't God sending people to hell. It is a heartbroken God. You ask the question, well, why does a loving God? It is a heartbroken God when he loses anybody to hell. So it's a choice that we make. Again, what would be the standard if God let some sin in? What would be the standard? Most of us would make the standard, all our sin's okay because God understands, but all sin is anathema to God. We can't get to heaven unless we are without sin. Jesus alone takes away the sin. Here is a question from Abby. Do you think church services should be geared more to the unbeliever or to believers? Abby, this is a, 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 a huge question that's been going on. I've been saved for 28 years, and this is a question that's been wrestled with the entire 28 years that I've been a Christian. Um, I'll be really direct in a moment, but this is one of those things where we need to win unbelievers. And yes, it's our mission to make disciples. But the way we do that is by living our life for Christ and, and proclaiming the gospel of grace. But that's outside the church walls. Inside the church walls, it's the, the, the separated people of God. That's what ecclesia, the, the word for church, means. Set apart. Well, church is for believers. And the purpose of church is to equip the saints, the believers, for the work of ministry. To teach them who Jesus is so they can know him intimately. To, to teach them how to live their lives so that their light can shine before men in such a way that God will, will uh, put them up on a lampstand so that light can be seen by everybody so that light can be attractive to others. So church services ought to be geared toward the believer, not the unbeliever. Now, having said that, the way to gear something toward the believer is to teach them. I think a lot of times we just want butts in the seat. And so we say things that will attract unbelievers and allow them to be comfortable in church. I want every unbeliever that comes to church at Calvary Chapel to be uncomfortable from the moment we start singing worship songs until the moment I get off the stage. I want the Word of God to convict them. Unfortunately, we've made unconverted men and women too comfortable in church just so we can count them as attendees. So while we teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Every single message, Abby, every single one has the gospel message presented. And there's never a time when I'm standing in that pulpit where I don't close with an invitation to unbelievers who might be among us. You know what's interesting, Abby? Because the people here at Calvary Chapel know that there's going to be an invitation given every time they're in church. They bring unbelievers. They bring family members and friends that they're a little uncomfortable talking to about Jesus. They bring them because they know that they're going to give, be given the opportunity to become a believer, a born-again Christian. And so they come and they're praying like crazy. And if the Holy Spirit moves on their hearts, we want everybody who doesn't know Jesus to have a chance to get to know him. This past Sunday um, here at Calvary Chapel, we had... Um, in all three services, people who weren't believers before come forward and give their life to Jesus. Now, we also give an invitation at the end of our service for the believers. 
for them to get right with God, whatever the context of the Bible study was, whatever issues or words of knowledge God is giving me, we want to give them a chance to leave here reconnected to the Lord. But make no mistake, church is where believers are to be equipped for the work of ministry. So it should be geared toward them. And as we equip the believers for the work of ministry, they're going to go out and talk to the unbelievers in their lives. Rudy says, Pastor Ron, I so want to believe in eternal security, but how do you explain all the verses that say we can lose our salvation? Rudy, I wish you were calling in because you can't show me one. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says that we can lose our salvation. In fact, just the opposite is true. Security is from cover to cover. Being sold, being we're being pleaded with to, to accept God's invitation for eternal security. And any verse that you think you've read that says we can lose our salvation, you've read completely out of context and missed the point of the verse. Hebrews is often brought up on this program. It's impossible for one who's tasted the goodness of God, who's shared in the Holy Spirit, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. That's not talking about losing salvation at all. Jesus said to his Father in his intimate prayer, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. So you're reading the verse is wrong, Rudy. What I'd ask you to do is give us a phone call today or in a subsequent program uh, and tell me what verses you're talking about because there is not a single verse in Scripture that says that we can lose our salvation. It's just impossible. And since we've only got five minutes left, Rudy, that's probably not going to be today. But I want you to believe in eternal security too. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. And read it out loud two, three, four times. And then talk to yourself. Say, what does it mean? There's no way you can exegete that passage without coming away from knowing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That verse says that you are sealed with a deposit, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now again, if I guarantee something, the guarantee is only as good as my ability to perform it. But this is God who's guaranteeing it. Not only is he guaranteeing, he still wants us to feel secure, Rudy. That he gives us a down payment on that security, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So there isn't a single verse not a single verse that says we can lose our salvation. Here's a question from Rebecca. Why did Jesus speak in parables that are so hard to understand? Um, Rebecca, he really... The, the parables were not hard for, to, to understand for the people in that culture. Jesus gives uh, examples in the parables that... Uh, all of his audience would have understood. They were agrarian. It was an agrarian society. Uh, they were their farmers and and um, uh, people planting pastures and uh, talk about birds and trees. They understood all of that. Now, when we talk, maybe we would use sports analogies or movie analogies uh, if we wanted to be especially able to be understood. Well, in Jesus' day, they all got it. And you can know that because whenever Jesus told parables, people got mad at him. And the reason they got mad at him was because they understood exactly what he was talking about. In one place, it says, they said, Jesus, don't you know that you hurt our feelings? Because we know you're talking about us. Well, that was the point, hurt feelings. So they might be hard for us to understand because of the cultural references but they certainly weren't hard for the people to understand. In fact, they were so clear 
that they had to refuse to hear, refuse to, to, to understand in order to reject him. And that's what they chose to do. So, uh, Rebecca, the um, parables aren't hard to understand if you really dig in. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, which is the foundational parable uh, of Jesus. It's so important. Jesus himself gives us the meaning, not only of the parable, but of the symbols in the parable. And then the hermeneutic of expositional constancy um, then applies to all of the other symbols in the parables as well. So they're not hard to understand. There's a book by um, Herbert Lockyer. It's called All the Parables in the Bible. It's sort of the definitive or authoritative work on on interpreting and understanding the parables. And uh, I believe it's a must-have for every serious student of the Bible. Um, Herbert Lockyer, L-O-C-K-Y-E-A-R, The Parables of Jesus. We have one minute left, so I don't have time for a question. Uh, remember, tomorrow we'll have our graduating seniors live on the program, so tune in and listen to to uh, Hope for a Future. These are good kids, and you will be blessed. Uh, please pray for us. It's a busy week. we got our high school uh, awards banquet tonight, uh, and then on Thursday uh, is our graduation ceremony. This is our 12th graduating class. We're finishing our 19th year of our free school here at Calvary Chapel. What a blessing it is. We'll be back tomorrow with a special program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until then, keep looking up. Jesus is bound to come soon. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.